Welcome to A Lifetime on Planet Groove, uh, where me and Guy, hello Guy. Hello Eds. Are talking about our favorite album of just about all time, Maceo Parker's Life on Planet Groove. How are you doing, Guy? I'm very well, thanks Eds. Yes, yes. I'm, uh, I don't know what I'm doing, but yeah. <laughs> I'm fine. Good. I'm excited. Good. Me too. Yeah, this is one of my favorite interviews, I have to say. Not, not that, I, that I have... Uh, not that I'm uh, belittling any of the other interviews because they were all amazing, but um, this is one that was extremely funny for me. Absolutely. <laughs> involved in. And there's, there's three things I'm excited about. The third one is who you're talking to today, who we'll come to in a moment, because it's just, uh, yeah, I um, can't tell you how much fun I've had listening back to that interview today. Yeah. Um, first, I'm just excited to talk to you because it's been a few weeks. Yes. And, you know, so spoiler alert, we're not actually recording these Week by week, we've been doing them in little batches, but then, you know, uh, I've had work things come up. I've had, you know, family pets dying minutes before we were due to talk. <laughs> Rest in peace, Chocolate the Mouse. You're very sorely Rest missed. Yeah, unusual cancellation reason, that wasn't it? A uh, bereavement, yeah, pet, pet but bereavement. But you've not seen many of those. No. So there's that. Um, also, just, you know, excited that, um, you know, that some people are listening to the show. Um, yes. You know, the numbers are, are creeping in the right direction. Uh, Including to today's see. guest. Oh, my goodness, yes, who um, is clearly listening and, and emailed me to correct me on a point today, which <laughs> just about made my day. <laughs> and just, uh, you know, although something we typically do at the end of the show, just to say, you know, for anyone who is listening, if you like the show, you know, um, I mean, you know, leave us a review, that'd be great. But just tell a friend, word of mouth is just hugely important if you're enjoying what we're putting out. Tell someone else, I'm sure. There's some other people out there who love this album just as much as we do. And, you know, very excited to see those, uh, uh, that, that graph creeping up. And of course, you know, main event, who, who are you talking to today, Guy? It's got me so excited. Yeah. So in, in this episode, I speak to the amazing Rodney Jones, the one and only, oh, yes. who, as I say, it was a, well, I know you were very jealous of me, weren't you? Because you really wanted to speak to Rodney. But in terms of time zones, it just worked out that um, I got to speak to Rodney, which was amazing because, you know, Rodney Jones, of course, guitarist on uh, Life on Planet Groove. Um, a very amusing, very funny <laughs> interviewee, I have to say. I absolutely love speaking to Rodney. Uh, particularly, we we might, I won't spoil it, but he, he gives a brilliant uh, description of the... Uh, the life cycle of a session musician, which was really made me laugh, <laughs> uh, which is wor- worth listening to. That's right near the end of the interview, isn't it? Uh, but he's he's had a, a, a bit like Vincent Henry. Um, you know, he has had an absolutely unbelievable session musician career, hasn't he, Rodney? Astonishing. I won't spoil who he started out with because I'll let him tell you in the tell us in the interview. But you know, he he, he started young um, with a, an absolute living, well, a legend of the. Uh, with an absolute legend of the music industry and it kind of progressed from there and it, it, some of the funniest things he told me was who some of the people he's turned down over the years as well which is pretty amazing that that list alone was <laughs> impressive enough of the people he said no to oh yeah um, so yeah it was amazing to speak to Rodney I mean what a joy to just yeah have that time because he's an inspirational musician absolutely and before we get to the interview today you know speaking of being an inspiration. I'd just like to talk a little bit about some of his contributions to um, to Life on Planet Groove. Mm-hmm. There's, um, you know, a particular solo that I'll save for the the end of the show for today. Well, I mean, you know, his only solo on the on the record that I'd, I'd love to finish with today. But just 
you know, thinking about things that we've talked about, about why we love funk music, about musicians, you know, serving the song and serving the groove. And just throughout this record, you know, that rhythm section, so in the pocket and Rodney Jones just nailing those, you know, what we've talked about before. It can be, you know, very simple parts sometimes, but just, you know, played to perfection and just forming part of a, a, you know, a magnificent whole. So although, uh, you know, I'm sure as usual, be cutting in little bits of music during the interview, I'd like to uh, play a little bit here of um, the second track from the album, Pass the Peas. Towards the end, when the horn section have done their magnificent stuff, and we're just left with the rhythm section playing out, and oh my god, if you you know, if you know the album, you know what's coming, and if you never heard before, enjoy this. Godhead, how good is that? I know, just I mean, I'm in funk heaven. I'm, I'm jealous. I want to get my guitar out. I, I should actually say, Good God! <laughs> I just it reminds me of that story about um, I don't know where it comes from, about James Brown auditioning guitarists and um, you know, asking the question, you know, can can you play an E9 chord? <laughs> and if the answer is yes, how long for? <laughs> And, you know, um, I mean, yeah, Rodney's playing, you know, D7 there, but it's a moot point. You know, just, ah, uh, oh, just not moving, just playing that part and playing it right. You know, I just, I love that. Well, I think I think Rodney kind of alludes to it slightly in the interview, doesn't he, that, you know, because he's a jazz guitarist, you know, he's used yeah. to being all over the place, isn't he, in terms of, the, you know, what he's playing and, and experimenting and trying different things and going with the moment. But in funk, it's the very, that's the opposite of what you're supposed to do, isn't it? You're supposed to just sit on one chord or one line for, yeah, 10 minutes plus. And, you know, obviously for someone like Rodney, it probably, you know, he did, as I said, he alluded to it, it does feel a little bit restrictive sometimes, but I think he, like a lot of musicians, just love that. They must just love that feeling of when it's when it's chugging along and everyone's in the pocket, as you say. Um, yeah, it's pretty special, isn't it, for everyone? Rodney can play everything, but, you know, when it's right, it's right, and he plays it right. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, this is me talking to Rodney. Rodney, thanks for talking to us. It's an absolute pleasure to meet you. It's my pleasure to meet you. Um, well, thank you. It, we'd, I'd love to talk to you first just about, you know, your beginnings as a as a professional musician because we've spoken to everyone about that. We, we'll talk about life on Planet Group, you know, at length later. <laughs> but in terms of you, how did you know you've obviously worked with all sorts of people as a guitarist, and now you're an educator too, hugely respected jazz guitarist. How did it all start for you, and 
Well, what was the spark that really I was born in a log cabin in 1857? <laughs> my daddy's daddy and his daddy before him. Went, uh, uh, no, you know, when I was uh, about six, my father got a toy guitar that he gave me, and I liked it, and I posed with it, and you know, did the things that little kids do, like I'm a superstar and that kind of stuff. When uh, I was eight, he got a real guitar. And he discovered he wasn't particularly talented at it. And so he gave it to me and I took to it really quickly. I took my first lesson when I was 10 playing uh, folk songs Mm -hmm. and got good enough to like even play like with Pete Seeger and the folk people of the day, that kind of stuff like that. Um, I got way into um, uh, the, the, Jimi Hendrix and Johnny Winter and Alvin Lee and and uh, Eric Clapton and Albert Collins and BB King and all the sort of blues rock guitar players of the time. I got way into that and started playing that way. At the same time, I was really I was playing in a band that we did funk, so right. I was uh, you know I was learning you know things like uh, Sly Stone tunes and the Spinners and the, you know the Drifters and the Moments and all those kind of things. And actually. Did some gigs with them as a teenager of, you know, 14, 15. I was playing guitar with some of those groups. And um, but I remember listening to uh, a recording called The Popcorn uh, that had uh, Jimmy Nolan. Or the B-side had Jimmy Nolan, Macy, uh, James Brown's guitarist, play an extended solo when he played octaves and things. And I remember trying to copy that. I was like, man, that is like... I didn't know James Brown had it like that. I was like, that is amazing. I'm sure. So I want that really sent me down the rabbit hole of that. And that's when I discovered Maceo because he was the featured soloist. And yep. so I was like, wow, you know, I used to, my friends and I used to play James Brown tracks and wait for him to say Maceo. And, you know, we, it was a whole yeah. thing. And, uh, you know, so then that led me to, you know, to really uh, excel in the jazz world. Um, yeah. I began by playing with a drummer named Chico Hamilton. And then uh, when I was just turning 19, Dizzy Gillespie asked me to join his band. Um, and I, so I joined Dizzy's band and wow. I ended up playing. How with him was for that? I mean, how, how did that feel to get that call at 19? I mean, it was amazing. He, he had, I was in college at the time and he had come as a guest solos with the college band because the band leader, the head of the program was a guy named John Lewis, who was the musical director for the modern jazz quartet pianist. And he had invited Dizzy to come and, and be the trumpet soloist. So Dizzy came, and afterwards he um, he said, man, you play really good. You know, uh, I'd like you to join my band. He said, I'm going to call you. I was like, you know, and I asked John Lewis, you know, hey, Dizzy asked me to join his band. What, what should I do? And the John Lewis was like, under no circumstances should you join Dizzy's band. Under no circumstances. No, don't go on the road with Dizzy Gillespie, you know. Why? Who knows what he knew? Well, I mean, I guess he was thinking like I'm a young guy, 18 or 19, and I'm going to be on the road with a bunch of jazz musicians like <laughs> OMG. Like he knew what I didn't yeah. know, you know. So yeah. I asked my father, you know, I asked my father. I said, "Yeah, Dad, Dizzy Gillespie asked me to join his band. You know, what should I do?" And my father was like, "Under no circumstances should you go and join Dizzy Gillespie's band." <laughs> and so then I thought I sat down on the side of my bed at home in New York City. And I remember asking myself this question. It was like really clear, like a moment of clarity. I said, would I learn more about jazz from people teaching it or the guy who invented it? Yeah. <laughs> I just asked myself that question just like that. And then, it, then the answer became really clear. Like, yeah. so, so then I joined Jesse's band. I was there with them three years, and we remained friends until, uh, until he left this planet. And, uh, 
that's it. So anyway, uh, you know, I'm busy, you know, touring and playing with all the jazz greats of the time, Kenny Burrell and, you know, Jimmy McGriff and Lena Horn I was playing with and, and uh, Ruth Brown and all these legends and any, and all kind of things and doing TV commercials and teaching at Manhattan school of music at that time. And then I got a call uh, from Stefan minor. Yeah. Uh, who, who knew, got my number because Kellis Parker, who's Maceo's niece, a uh, nephew, uh, was one of my students. And I guess Kellis had said, hey, Rodney could play, you know, likes to play funk and could play that music easy. They were looking for a guitar player. So he said, he explained, you know, Maceo's going to do a record. We think we're going to call it Roots Revisited. Uh, it's going to have Fred Wesley and Pee Wee Ellis and, you know, Don Pullen and Bill Stewart. And, of course, I was like, once he said Maceo and Fred and Pee Wee, it didn't matter who else was in the band, you know. And then he said, and here's, here's the, the budget. And the budget was like super low. I was I was making good money in those days doing the other gigs I was doing. And his budget was like, I would say no to that like immediately. So I was like, well, I don't know, Stefan. Uh, you know, let me. I need a day. Let me let me just look at, at where I'm at. I'll call you tomorrow. So I hung up the phone. He said, okay, call me tomorrow. I hung up the phone. I called my friend who was in this one of the early bands when I was 15, playing the James Brown tunes and the Maceo, playing all those songs. You know. And I said, hey, man, you won't believe this. Like, he's got a call to play on a Maceo Parker record. He's like, oh, my God, Maceo, really? <laughs> I said, "I said, yeah. I said, but the money wasn't good. And I turned it down. He said, he said, are you freaking crazy? You should pay him to be on the record. Said, you remember when we you remember when we would just listen to that music and dream of one day we'd ever play with Maceo or Fred or Pee Wee? Like, we literally dreamed that dream. And I was like, I do remember that now. I forgot. And he was like, He's like, we used to fantasize about one day we'd ever be good enough to play with Maceo. And now you got a call to play with Maceo and you're thinking about it? I said, you're right. So I didn't even wait a day. I called Stefan back that day. And yeah. said, right, within an hour, I said, you know what? If I've worked it out. I can make the game. Amazing. Amazing. And that began an association of playing with Maceo for, you know, um, very consistently for about three years and then on and off for a year after that or so. Yeah. We'll come back to Maceo in a minute, but just rewinding to Dizzy, were, were the, the warnings from your dad and your teacher, were they right to warn you not to go? Or was yes. it? Was it... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's just say this. I grew up very quickly. It was, a, it was an amazing education. Yeah. Um, you know, in many ways, I imagine. I learned lots about music. I learned lots about life. <laughs> I learned lots about what it is to be a young man. Because you got to remember, I'm a 19-year-old guy with a big afro, looking pretty good, playing yeah. with Disney Gillespie, touring the world, making about $2,000 a week, which at that time was like $10,000 a week. I had a lot of – I was making money. I was traveling the world. I looked good. And <laughs> the, the, the young girls of, say, between 18 and 25 that came out to hear this band – we're like, look at that guitar player. So it was <laughs> fantasy. It was like fantasy world for me. And I wasn't like a, you know, a, um, uh, you know, I wasn't a slutty type or no. sleep with everybody type. But I had my share of fun, you know, <laughs> and uh, and I learned a lot about myself. And you know, yeah, there was a time when, you know, you 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 could engage in behavior and not worry about catching death. You know deathly illnesses and things yeah yeah um so you know look my my kids wanted me to have a, a dna test you know to see like where my ancestry was and all that kind of stuff right i was like oh that's interesting so when they when it came back because they had it was sent to them you know 
And when it came back, uh, I was like, oh, where are you from? I said, oh, I didn't even look at that part. But you don't have any kids on the side. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like that's what you wanted to know? Like, the whole point of the DNA test was to see if I had if you had any siblings, that's the secret. They're like, oh, we didn't really want to say anything, but that, you know, we know, Dad, you're a musician after all. You know, yeah. I was like, yeah, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Wow. So, um, yeah, so I I learned a lot with Disney, and after playing with Disney for years, and I um, I left Disney's band just because I guess got burned out on the road. Disney was touring 25 days a month every month, and I I did three years of that, and I was done. And I I left Disney, and then Elvin Jones called me to join his band like a month later and I turned to Elvin down. I was like, man, this is the greatest opportunity of my life, but I'm just like completely burned out. I just can't do it, you know? And, uh, cause he was on tour just like Dizzy was, you know? Um, and, and so then I ended up getting into the New York studio scene, doing a lot of commercials and, and playing with a lot of sort of the, the beginning of, of kind of smooth jazz. Like I played with Angela Bofield, if you know her, I was like her first musical director and Rodney Franklin and Noel Pointer, kind of the beginning of fusion, Jazz. I did a lot of that kind of stuff, and I did you know some a lot of recordings, some you know commercials and that kind of stuff. I played guitar on it and that stuff, and then that led to in 1983, I I became Lena Horne's guitarist, which then you know really built my my accompaniment sideman sort of thing. Like, like I had the Dizzy Gillespie pedigree as like the bebop, you know, burning bebop guy, but Lena Horne gave me the sort of like the mature like. The guy can play like refined music and really play with an orchestra. So that led me to play with Peggy Lee and Ruth Brown and Ernestine Anderson and, you know, Carmen McRae and, you know, all the singers of the world. I got, once Lena puts her imprint on you and says, you're good enough for me, then you're good enough for everybody. And so that really led to that. And, uh, you know, so I've had, you know, uh, I have had a, you know, really amazing time playing for all of the greats within the singing world, as well as, I've done, I did. I was a house guitar player at the Apollo for nine years, so I played with everyone. I did Lauren Hill's first gig when she was on the talent show, you know, and uh, you know have, have recorded and played with a who's who of everybody, um, and turned down gigs. You know, I, I turned down Michael Jackson's gig. You know, I've, I've turned down. I turned down <laughs> Whitney Houston. You know, the gigs I've turned Why down. Why did you turn down uh, Michael Jackson? Um, I didn't think that it was a good time for me to. First of all, I was I was working a lot. So it yeah. wasn't even really, I mean, he was paying a lot of money, but it wasn't, it wasn't that. Um, I just didn't want to all of a sudden go back on the road again when I had a, I'd worked hard to build a career I had in New York doing what I was doing. And also I had kids, you know, and I, I thought, well, I want to be around for them. He was also uh, engaged in um, some less than savory accusations and things of this nature. Uh, and okay. I just thought, you know, like I got young children and, and I don't know if it's true or not, but do I want to be like associated with that at this point? I just decided, got you it. know, I don't need to do it. And no, I turned out Whitney Houston because I didn't want to put on a tuxedo. <laughs> it's true. I got the call. Whitney Houston's going to be, she's going to be doing a big concert at Lincoln Center. And, uh, she, you know, she'd love for you to play guitar for the concert, you know. And I said, oh, that's fantastic. I said, okay. Gave me all the information. All the budget was right. I said, and what's the dress code? He said, oh, um, it's tuxedo. And I said, okay. And I hung up the phone. I'm like, you know what? There's no way I'm putting on a tuxedo. Like, it was the middle of summer. It was hot. I'm like, I am not, not even for Whitney Houston am I putting on a tuxedo. And I called and said, you know, I suddenly came up. I'm not able to do it. So I didn't do it. Amazing.
Just out of interest, by the way, just finally on the, the whole Dizzy thing, did your dad try and stop you going away with Dizzy or did he, did you just say, no, you know, did not, not at all. Go? No, not at all. And Dizzy, and I got to say, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm talking about the lifestyle, but Dizzy was very, um, he was a very com- kind and uh, nurturing type of guy. He, he looked out, out for me, you know, he made sure that I was cool. He gave me guidance about what I might not want to do. I didn't always listen. Right. You know, and what I what I might want to do, um, but he was uh, he really treated me like I was his son, you know, and treated me golden and and beautifully. And for the three years I was with him, so no, it was a it was a wonderful experience. He didn't share a lot musically. I mean, he didn't he didn't really sit me at the piano and say, "Let me show you all my stuff." He didn't really do that. It was more just like friendship type of thing, more like an older brother or a father figure. Not really. I had a great father figure, so I didn't need him to be my dad. But he was. He played the older man, sort of apprenticeship, mentorship type of thing. And so it was a really wonderful experience. It, it uh, It's still still showing up in my daily life. Like I remember things or things will occur. I'll say, oh, I know that. Oh, I remember Dizzy told me that like all those years ago. So it's it's an amazing, it's a gift that keeps on giving. He was a remarkable, uh, genius, kind man to me. Uh, yeah, it must have been an incredible experience at that age. So when you then, um, you know, got the call from ACO you said yes what was it like then getting in a room with Fred and Pee-wee I mean and I, went in, the first I time? went in the room and I mean here's the thing I wasn't starstruck because I played with the biggest celebrities in the world already yeah you know so I understood Maceo was a hero to me but I had mm-hmm. played with like superstars you know you know Bonnie Raitt and people that are like you know like yeah. on the world stage are known more than Maceo but to me Maceo yeah. was it might as well have been you know God, because Maceo, you know, <laughs> Maceo was a funk and soul God to me. And he was, it was beyond celebrity. He was like this other thing, you know? So, um, so I met him and it was all cool. And I met Fred and, and of course I was equally impressed with Fred because Fred wrote so many of the James Brown arrangements and the hits that I loved. And Pee Wee wrote Cold Sweat. And, and I mean, so I was impressed by them as much as Maceo really at the time. Yeah, um, yeah, but I wasn't intimidated. I mean, I I was qualified. I knew I could play the music because I knew what the music. I knew I'd grown up. If I could play it at fifteen, I knew I could play it then. You know, and uh, so I, <laughs> I, you know, I, it was more like wanting to just do a great job for for him and for them. And so then when we did, and it began like, oh, you know, um, you know, the the roots revisited it ended up being like sort of some of the tunes were like jazz and more jazz blues based things and even funky things. Well, I knew that inside out. That was no, you know, that was like where I lived. So I felt right at home. You know, I liked Don Pullen's playing. He was a great jazz player and Bill Stewart played great drums. So I was right at home. I was I was actually surprised that, that Maceo, Fred, and Pee Wee played jazz as well as they did. I remember thinking like, wow, those guys, I didn't know they could do that side of it. I thought it was going to be like, you know, a Bootsy Collins date and it was all going to be like yeah. pure funk, but it wasn't, you <laughs> yeah. know. Did so, they all start out as jazz guys, really? Or? Um. Well, I think Maceo started out as a kind of a blues, sort of like a, a Junior Walker, Hank Crawford, yeah. you know, jazz, but it really inflected with the blues sort of thing. Fred is a, you know, Fred is a, you know, dedicated uh, and and skilled jazz musician. I mean, he could, he played in jazz bands. He could stand on the stage with virtually any jazz group and be one of the best there. And Pee Wee the same. Pee Wee and Fred were actual real jazz players who also played funk. Maceo was a funk player who could play jazz. I see. Yeah. 
yeah so so was those first recording sessions then that must have been a just a, was it just a joy because you as you say you knew what you were doing you weren't overawed was it just a joy to be in a room playing with them or you know just vibing with them it was out of body i remember going and calling my friend <laughs> like on the break saying it's, you won't believe this like we just played if we just played it's a man's world he called it children's world we just played it's a man's world you won't believe it you know i had to play the guitar part which was really hard because to go dun, 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 and the guitar goes dun, dun, yeah dun, 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 dun. you know to hold that and not move it's see you know you would think oh that's not so hard but that's that yeah. was really hard because it was yeah. slow and I had to like beat because the drums are hitting and I'm hitting at the exact same moment. So if there's any loss of concentration, I think on that recording, there was one hit that was a little off, which was my fault. But the rest of them, I, I was able to concentrate enough. You know, the challenge playing with Maceo is always to play the show and not watch the show because he's yeah. so, you know, it's so amazing. Like you're, you're playing and like you're watching the show, like you're in the audience. All of a sudden, you miss, <laughs> you, you miss your cue, you know, you know, so that was one of the, the great challenges of that. Yeah, but it was surreal. You know, it was really, it was amazing. We recorded the whole thing in one or two days, maybe two days. I'm not sure. I don't remember if it was one or two days, but we recorded it and it sounded great. And I didn't know what was going to happen. Stefan said, oh, I'm going to put together some dates. We'll, we'll call you. And you never know if that's just talk or if they're going to do it. And then they called. And I think he had a, a gig in in uh, Paris and one in Holland somewhere um, for Roots Revisited. With Don Pullen and Larry Gold, I mean uh, Don Pullen and Bill Stewart, and then Don Pullen got ill, and then that, then Larry Golding came in and became the organist, organist, and that was that. Yeah. And then later Bill Stewart left, and then we had Melvin Parker, and I think James Gadsden even did did some, uh, uh, maybe even Clyde Stubberfield. Uh -huh. You know, we had a, and then Kenwood Denard, of course. Yeah. Um, you know, which I recommended Kenwood. Oh, did you? How Kenwood did you know? Grew up. We grew oh, up. Oh, really? We grew up together, and Kenwood and I, Kenwood was always the funk god of all funk gods of the kids growing up when I was coming up, you know. So uh, I had gotten Kenwood on Dizzy's gig because Dizzy had said, hey, I need someone, I want a drummer who can play funk. I said, Dizzy, I got the guy. He's like, he's, but can he, can he really play? I said, I'm not going to say anymore. Let him come to a rehearsal. And, you know, and Dizzy heard the like, first five minutes, he's like, this is the guy. I waited all my life for this guy, you know. <laughs> and uh, so Maceo, when they were like, we need a drummer, I was like, I got your guy. I know the perfect guy. Because Ken would knew would know all the material, knew the language. You know, we grew up playing those tunes together. So Kenwood was thrilled. And, uh, you know, so Kenwood ended up doing Life on Planet Groove. I, I think he did one tour and that was it. Amazing. So did, did how old were you then when you met Kenwood? Oh, 14. Right. And was that a school or was that through music or no? Just 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 being guys in the neighborhood that wanted to play play music, you know. I knew you know I knew the guys. Kenwood's protege was a guy named Joe Ham, who I played a lot with, and I played with a bass player named Eddie Ellis, who knew Kenwood, and so it was all really, you know, we were all liking the same music and we'd listen together and 
play together and jam together and form little bands and then that band would break up and two of us would be in the other band, two of us would be another, you know, it was, it was, it was that kind of thing, really fluid situation, but we all knew and loved and respected each other. Yeah. So you and Kenwood had that relationship for a long time. Were, were you like really good friends then when you were younger? Or were, you, were they just, yeah, were you, sort of I talk, mean, you know, not, people that you knew or were you really good? We were, we were good friends, you know, we did yeah. play together, but he went off to school. He went to Berkeley and I went on the road with Dizzy. So we, you know, I, I began my career and he began his career. His career sort of migrated to playing like, you know, with groups like Brand X and these big rock groups. And and mine became playing with jazz legends and accompanying singers and stuff like that. You know, we, we you know, doing TV commercials and stuff. So we had, we sort of went different routes, but we always stayed in touch. And, and uh, Ken would play on my a record called uh, Soul Manifesto Live. He played on that. Um, and so well, we stayed friends and, you know, always in touch and, and that kind of stuff. So and I played on Kenwood's recordings and he's played on mine. And, you know, he's just, he's a one of a kind genius drummer. There's no, nobody else like him. Yeah. And is it right? I think when I spoke to Vincent Henry, he told me that you, had you crossed paths when you were studying when you were younger? Is that right? Vincent Henry and I, Vincent was going to college when I went to college. Yeah. He yeah, was there so was when, when, Dizzy came, when Dizzy came and played with the band, Vincent was there. Oh. He and I had not been in touch. So I didn't really see him again after college till he showed up on the gig. I'm like, Vincent? And he was playing <laughs> bass too. And I was like, yeah, dude, what? You know, but we, I mean, we knew each other from, from college, from 18 years old. Yeah. That must have been nice just to suddenly think, oh, I know that guy. I mean, amazing synchronicity, you know, that. And so I'm there with Kenwood and... I, I had heard Larry before at a club called Augie's in New York, which is where Maceo heard him. I I had I didn't know Larry, but I knew of Larry. Um, Bill Stewart and I knew, Bill I knew because uh, Bill played on the original Roots Revisited record, so I knew Bill from from that. And the Vincent Henry, I knew from college, and so there it was. And so yeah, I was, one thing I was going to talk to you about was Kenwood Denard. I mean, because obviously the. The the production I think on Life on Planet Groove is incredible. It, like it's su- it's such a clear recording. It's such it captures the instruments so well and it's so well mixed. But one of the things that I mean, obviously your guitar playing is great, but Kenwood's drums are so sort of um, dominant. I think you know not in a, a bad way, but they're just is the clarity of his his yeah. drumming is absolutely incredible. Well, he was very powerful, you know. And the, the thing is, and I you know I can. I'll say it because it's the truth, you know, or it's, it's the truth as I know it. Okay. I can't speak for anyone else, but, but, uh, Kenwood, you know, did play super in the pocket, super, but, you know, Kenwood was used to playing like it really pushing you. Maceo's concept of pocket was more like Jabbo and Clyde Stubberfield and James Gadsden sort of like sitting in the background and Maceo plays on top. Kenwood really pushed. Yeah, really pushed, and it, made, it pushed Maceo out of his comfort zone. I think really, it made Maceo play harder and different. Fred and Pee Wee loved Kenwood. They were like, "Oh my God, this is the drummer we've waited our life." Maceo, not so much. Maceo, yeah. Maceo was like, "I don't know if I want to be. That's not my concept for drums. I don't know if every night I want someone kicking my butt every night. <laughs> I want, I want to be the guy just kicking the butt. I don't know if I want someone kicking my butt every night." It's funny because Stefan Miner said a similar thing. He said, you know, Maceo was, wasn't, he said, it wasn't that he didn't like Kenwood, he said, but he wasn't quite sure about him. Well, Maceo, I mean, Maceo liked Kenwood's playing. He thought it was great. He just thought that Kenwood was like, you know, like a nuclear hurricane. And, you know, is that what you want to do? 
is that what you want to do on the gig every night? You know, forget yeah. I mean, the recording was great, but night after night, is that what you want in the band to do that? And yeah. I think his, yeah. his idea was like, you know, sit in the pocket versus yeah. push the envelope. Yeah. So that I think that's why Kimo didn't last. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think he was taking the spotlight away from Maceo a little bit? No, I don't think it was a spotlight thing. I don't think because, I mean, I don't think any one of us could do that. Maceo was singular no. in that regard. But I think just I think Kim would just um, was pushing. Hmm. Kim was like, okay, I, I'm okay now. Macy, we're going to take it to the next level, and now we're going to go to the <laughs> next level, and the next level. And Macy was like, hey, I want to like groove right where I am. I'm not trying yeah. to go to the next level like that. I think that was yeah. kind of the feeling of it. But for purposes of live uh, and purposes of recording, I mean, the excitement that it generated and the dynamics that he generated, you know are unequaled. Uh, it would have just been another good funk record were it not for Kenwood turning it into like this other thing. Cause then we all rose to the occasion. Yeah. It's funny. Now you say that. Yeah, it does. That makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought of it that way before, but you're right. You know, you've obviously got the three horns, the, the sort of focal point. You've got the amazing backing band, but it is actually sort of Kenwood's force from the back that really pushes it to another level you're right i hadn't thought of it that way i mean it becomes not just a funk band it becomes like a concert band yeah you know yeah. we weren't we weren't playing a club we were playing at an amphitheater yeah because kenwood remember his background was playing with big rock groups for thousands and thousands of people yeah. so kenwood came and played like he came and played for real you know like <laughs> he, he was playing like it was like you know you know ten thousand people in the audience yeah. you know and and that was great. I mean, we loved it. Every, I loved it, and Larry loved it, and everybody loved it. I just think Maceo didn't love it. Maceo yeah. liked loved the way Kid would played. Yeah, I think it was just too much energy from what Maceo was trying to do. And I and that's that's legit. It's not a judgment about anybody's talent or anybody's. Th- it's just you know that's just a decision you make as a band leader. I've been in lots of groups where you know you don't want you don't need to call a piano player that's a virtuoso because you don't need that in the band. You need yeah. the guy that's going to just play chords. Yeah. Yeah, and that, I, I guess that's often true with funk, isn't it? You know, you don't necessarily want, say, with guitar, you don't want someone to be soloing. You want someone to be just absolutely in the pocket absolutely. for an hour. You don't need George Benson when you need no. Jenny, Jimmy Nolan. <laughs> exactly. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So how long? How much were you touring with? How much did you end up touring with Maceo and, and Pee Wee? And um, I toured with him from the time the record came out, whichever, whenever that was, eighty nine or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, through about know. through about 1992, um, I did most of his tours. I I was also, like I said, I was a house guitar player for the at the Apollo and doing the TV show Showtime at the Apollo. So I didn't want to lose that gig because the, I was doing TV and TV pays a lot of money and it's steady and it's in town and I can be with my family and sleep in my own bed. And I didn't want to lose the gig. And so Maceo would do these long tours and I did most of them. Some of them I couldn't do, so they got other people. You know, sometimes Bruno did them and, uh, you know, and other people, uh, I, you know, and then at the same time that I started to get busy with, you know, I was working with Jimmy McGriff and also working with Ruth Brown at the same time. And then Lena began to be more active and I was also teaching. So I was, I was really busy and Maceo was like, you know, devote your life to playing funk and, and go out on the road and do that, you know, for months and months at a time. And I didn't want to do that just from a scheduling standpoint, but also I have many other musical interests too. Yeah, like yeah. he was doing 2% jazz, 98% funky stuff. <laughs> I was not in that world. I was, I was like, how about 50, 50, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I did it, but it, I didn't find it musically challenging. 
No. I found it super enjoyable and inspiring, but you know, I'm also like, you know, a student of the music and I like I listen to Coltrane and McCoy Tyner and you know, I I'm I was busy with those things and being on the road gave me no outlet to pursue that. Plus the TV work, all that I had built up in terms of work building a career in town, the TV work, you know, how many people get to be on television for nine years? Almost nobody. So that's a great gig. I'm not I'm not giving that up to go, you know, do a month tour in, in, in Europe playing funk. Yeah. I'm not going to do it. You know? So how did you end up being on the the, rec- the Life on Planet Groove then? Was that, did Stefan want his A-team, if you like, for the, the live recording? I mean, I was part of Maceo's touring band at that point. So I just got that call to do it, you know, and then they just augmented it. I guess Maceo, they augmented it with actually a, the bass mm-hmm. and the different singers and Candy Dolphin. Yeah. You know, um, but you know, uh, and Kenwood, but yeah, Larry and I had been doing the the gig. I think Melvin Parker had been playing drums for Maceo at that point, his brother. And uh, but for that recording, for whatever reason, they they needed a drummer, so I recommended Kenwood. Hmm. I mean, we've talked a little bit about Kenwood already, but what are what are your memories of those gigs in Cologne that ended up being the Life on Planet Groove live album? I remember it was it was fun actually because I, you know, that was the first time I'd really. Played with Kenwood playing Maceo's music. We might have done one warm up gig or something, but that was basically the first time. And but I knew what it was going to be. I already knew that Kenwood was going to crush it. I <laughs> knew it. I you know I knew that I knew what he was going to bring to the party. Yeah. So you know I thought it was an interesting dynamic to have Vincent uh, Henry play bass, and I don't know if he played saxophone. I think he just played some bass, but but that was um, you know I thought that was interesting because we'd always work with just organ bass. You know, so it was a different sort of thing. A candy Dolfer, I thought it was interesting because it's sort of like, you know, the root of the tree and then not, you know, then a leaf of the tree because you have Maceo and then you have guys like Dave Sanborn who are built off of the Maceo aesthetic. And then you have Candy Dolfer who's built off of the Dave Sanborn aesthetic. So you got two generations away. You know, you have Maceo, the original guy of that sound. Then you have Sanborn and because Candy had more of the Sanborn kind of feeling to her playing than Maceo, but she played great, you know, and she looked amazing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, come on. So, um, so yeah, that was an interesting, you know, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed, you know, it was fun for me to see how, how it was going to work out. How Because that was the first time we, we rehearsed that afternoon. That was the first time I had, I had seen, you know, we'd played with a bass player. It was the first time we had played with Candy Dolfer. We never had singers, so right. you know that was you know fun to have the singers there, and um, so yeah, it was it was cool. I mean, I knew the music, and it wasn't hard. You know, Maceo just said like you know he he ran it down. There was no sheet. There was nothing written out. No, everything was just like everything like hey, you know, and it's like <laughs> yeah, I sort of I've heard it. Well, let's run it down. Yeah, and then you run it down, you figure it out. You know, that's you hire good good musicians. You know, yeah. I went I did a James Brown record date one time, and and. Uh, Fred Wesley was was uh, producing the date, and I got there early and, and set. I brought two guitars and set up the music stand. And Fred came in like at a half an hour before the beginning of the date and took the music stands and said, "We won't be needing those." And Fred, you know, it's a ten the ten piece band. He's like, "We won't be needing that." I'm like, "No, no music for ten piece." He said, "Yeah." He said, "He said, you know how James Brown sings, right?" I say, "Yeah." He says, "You know what what he likes to hear?" I say, "Yeah." He said, "Do that." Amazing. And that's what I did. So I just did like what came naturally and everybody else in the band. And then, you know, a half an hour later, we had a killing track that sounded exactly like what James Brown would want. 
with no music, <laughs> but we all knew what to do. And that was amazing. And that, you know, and then Fred, you know, shared like, you know, that's the magic of James Brown. You get the right guys to play the music, then the music is not a problem. You only have to write everything down and figure everything out if it's the wrong people and they don't know what to do. If you hire people that know what to do, you, you, you give them a brief outline and let them do what they do. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a big part of funk, isn't it? And it's very much on Life on Planet Groove is a good example where the the joy. Well, as a listener for me, and you know, I play music, play bass as well. We play me and Ed, my, the, my friend who were doing this together. We play obviously not to the same level, but you know, we there's something the, the joy of funk is the repetition and the the groove when you when the, everyone's in the pocket and there's there's very much. That live on Planet Groove is a great example of that, I think. And it's as you say, it's not about yeah. complicated parts; it's about everybody working together to create one incredible sound. And, and we're all being authentic, you know. I, I, when I yeah. was playing that music with Maceo, like that's the only thing I wanted to be playing. Like I believed that I was one hundred percent organic with it. Like I wasn't playing it from any kind of mental. Oh, I know how to play funk, or I know what I should play. I was playing like. What fills my soul? Like, I'm in the audience. What do I want to hear the guitar player doing? Yeah. If I'm in the audience and I'm listening to me, what do I want to hear? And whatever that is, is what I play. So did they give you much direction? Did they say, this is the guitar part? Or did they say, you play whatever no. guitar part? <laughs> None. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, other than like, okay, if we're doing, uh, you know, uh, you know, the the whatever the Curtis Mayfield tune we did, and I had to little play a little yeah. intro or solo or whatever. They'll just say, like, you know, you play the intro. I'm like, okay. <laughs> oh, it, there was not much guidance. There was no guidance in terms of, like, sometimes Fred would give guidance, you know, but he wasn't producing the, the session, so he wasn't really involved, you know, but yeah. uh, in that in that way. Um, but, no, usually it was just left to me. If, if there's something they don't like, yeah. then, you know, they would say that. If they're like, hey, you know, that thing you're, like, lay out there or don't play there. But they never said play this there. No, no. So it was more like guidance by omission. Yeah. Don't play there, but whatever else you play, it's up to you. Yeah. One of the things that obviously, you know, about the album, Shake Everything You've Got, the you know, the opening track and the the whole the breakdown with Maceo and Kenwood. And then when everyone comes back in at the end, is such an incredible I it's one of my favorite pieces of music um ever, particularly when everyone comes back in at the end of it. Um yeah. But like, was that so? Would that have been? Would Maceo have just said? I mean, I know that they did that at previous gigs. I've heard, I think, other gigs where Maceo's done that with different drummers. So that obviously was a thing. Um, but would that would they have done that before him and Kenwood, or did they just do that on the on the night? No, <laughs> that was the first. One. I mean, it was it was like we knew there was a break. We we knew you know he might have said like, and then we'll get to this part, and Kenwood and we'll have a breakdown. He might have been like something quick and passing because we knew that's what was going to happen basically because mm. that's what happened that's how the tune went yeah but what i knew is that macy had no idea what was getting ready to happen <laughs> because i know kim wood i know kim wood is like he's not there kidding around no you know he's not there fooling around he's there to play the crap the holy crap out of the music and he did just that he did he really you know? did and he was there to like you know, if he's there, like, oh, we're going to build something, he's there to build it. He's not sitting in the pocket, like, waiting for Maceo to give him any clues. He's getting more and more intense every chord. He's building it. Every time around, he's getting deeper and deeper, more and more, you know. And he, he had levels to keep going, yeah, you know. Yeah. You, you kind of feel that, don't you? I mean, I wonder, do you think maybe that, you know, we before we started recording, we mentioned that there is a there's there is some kind of magic about this live album, I think. There's, there's something about it that is, you know, elevates it above other live albums, particularly in funk. And... 
do you think that maybe the fact that Maceo particularly hadn't played with Kenwood before, that you know his sort of unease and surprise at the whole thing was was part of the reason why the magic was created because he was suddenly you know what, what's going and he had to push himself. What was captured is sort of the spontaneity of jazz with the intensity and, and power of funk. You know, the spontaneity of jazz was what's going to happen, Maceo, between the two of you. Like, we don't know what's going to happen. And that's sort of like we're improvising in the moment. And so you hear the genius because Maceo had levels to go. Ken would have levels to go, but they had never come together and done that before. You know, if they had, I'm sure Ken would have, Maceo might have said, oh, Ken would just lay in the pocket. We're not going to build. We just keep. But because they didn't rehearse that, <laughs> it, it was this real organic, like that's, you know, my, that's my saying I use in, in all the music now. People say, well, why did you play that? I said, you know, because that's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. why I played that. You know, because why is that the on the record? Because that's what happened. Yeah, it's what happened. I, you know, it's, if you're going to tell the truth, then the truth is that's what happened. You know, so what happened that day was that. And that was genius and magic. That's the thing that, you know, I mean, that was the magic that you get two people that are, I mean, Maceo never played with a drummer at the level of Kim with Denard. There just aren't many. There's, you know, I mean, if you get Dennis Chambers or somebody like that, maybe like that, you know, or Harvey Mason, you know, there's a few guys that maybe could play like that. But, you know, he was, Kim was singular in what he could do. Maceo didn't really ever play with anybody like that. So it was news to him. And so when they got it, he was like, I'm sure he was like, man, this is, you know, he dug, he went in because he could. And I, and, and Kenwood was like, yeah, let's go. Let's rocket ship to the moon. Let's go. You know, do you think that's what potentially draws you, you as a musician to jazz and to, to funk with Maceo that, that idea that it, it isn't, you know, predetermined what's going to happen. You're going to, it is going to be in the moment, whatever happens on stage. Uh, yeah, I mean, for me with Maceo, the thing that draws me is 100% authenticity. Like, Maceo the music and Maceo the human being are the same thing. Like, he's soulful, he's real, he's, you know, he's funny. Like, all the things that come out in his music is exactly how he is as a person. So, I just love the authenticity. And I love the idea that Maceo, when he plays, is always telling a story. And he's always including the audience in on the story. He's telling the story, but he's also letting you like respond back and like, hey, did you like that part of the story? And the people respond. He's like, well, check this out. I like the storytelling aspect of that. You know, it, uh, you know, there, you know, there's a lot of great musicians that can can tell a story, but there's not that many musicians that can create a space for the audience to find their own story in the music. And the way Maceo plays is like, you know, you're listening to him and you're going along with him, and then all of a sudden you're having your experience. Yeah. That's a rarity. It's rare. It's rare in any kind of music. It's rare in jazz, you know, where you're listening to someone and all of a sudden, you know, or a great orator, you know, is telling a story and they tell it in such a way that you begin to think, well, yeah, I can relate to that yeah. in my own life. Yeah. I, and then, you know, you begin to drift off into your own. They've made a space for you to have a story. And Maceo, you know, through the rhythms and the blues and his personality and the singing and talking, the audience feels like they're part of the evening. Yeah. And they are. We're not ever playing at them. We're not ever playing to them. We're playing with them. You know, we're playing as a part of, we're creating something that's bigger than just musicians and just an audience. We're creating this experience Yeah. that, you know, Life on, Life on Planet Groove captured an experience. It captured an event. It captured something that happened. 
It didn't just capture music, musicians playing. It didn't just capture a dance party. It captured this other thing that years later we all remember and, and are glad we were a part of because that's the rarity. It's like it's one of those nights the people that were there to this day think like, wow, I remember I was there when. Mm, yeah. I remember I was there when they made that recording. I remember I was there when Maceo did this. I was there when Fred Wesley and Pee Wee and Maceo, they remember when because it was a moment that was fixed. It was a moment where they were, they were, it was something real for them and something real for us as musicians. And those things joined in a magical way. And that, that was, that's the magic of life on Planet Groove. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, you, you're right. And I hadn't thought about it that way. And I think that actually comes through on the record, doesn't it? it it's not just, Maceo including the the audience that were there but actually as a listener to the record you feel included in it as well and that you are you know, yeah and I think that's that's something that's as you say that's something very rare but Maceo it just seems so natural to Maceo doesn't it, it it's not like he's putting yeah. an act on that it seems like he's being completely genuine there was no there was no layering with Maceo Parker I can tell you that as someone around him like the Maceo you see is the Maceo you get. And the Maceo that plays the saxophone is the same person off. off. You know, everybody has their other sides, the introspective or whatever have you, where he's a human being. That's, I'm not saying that. Mm. I'm just saying that when he picks up his saxophone, he is only ever telling his truth. Mm -hmm. He's never playing for, like, some ulterior motive or to say how good I am. Look at me, how great I play. Or check out, I know this quote from this person. It's never that. He's always sharing his story. This is how... This is how I feel tonight. This is what my life has been. Yeah. This is what I learned. This is who's on the bandstand. This is what we're going to do. He's just truth telling. Yeah. It's like a great minister telling a sermon. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very sort of, you, you almost don't notice how brilliant Maceo is at that on this album. You know, his oratory, as you said, it, it, a lot of it is oratory, isn't it? But it, it's so meshed together with the music that it, it's a it's a vital he's like part the best of Baptist preacher. Yeah, yeah. He's the best best Baptist preacher. You're right. You know, he's got the church. So, yeah, man. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, he he, he whipped up the church. That's what he does. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounded like the crowd were having a great time. I mean, I know some of these things are overdubbed later, aren't they? With the the you know the way that they mix in the crowd noise, but it sounded like well, I've been to, I've seen Maceo live. It's a few years ago now, but it is a. It is a joyous experience in the in the crowd, but you, it really comes through on the live record as well, doesn't it? I mean, the crowd noise was deafening, so I don't know what they mixed in afterwards and all that, but it it was it was deafening. I mean, the crowd was on fire and and fully in, dancing yeah. like crazy. It was like a you know, it was it was a real moment. It it was a you know, magic happened. Yeah. Did you feel like it was when you were playing that this was? You know, because it's, e it's easy to sort of look back and think, oh, yeah, this this was a great album because it was successful and, you know, we're talking about it now still. But did it feel at the time like it was, holy, you know, this is a really, this is going to be a great live album? I knew there was something special, yeah. Because I because I heard in real time what was happening with Maceo and, you know, the audience and with Kenwood. Yeah. And, I, you know, I heard, like, I heard in real time, like, wow, this is like, this is not what I've heard Maceo do before. I knew that it was something different than he had done before, that had never been documented that he had done before. Incredible. And you said before we started recording that people still mention it to you that, I mean, obviously we're mentioning it now, but people say, oh, you're on Life on Planet Group. You know I mean? It's, it's as though 
you know, oh, the Disney Glass, yeah, 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 yeah. But Life on Planet Groove, yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah, but I have one. Yeah, we know. Yeah, to follow up, that's great. So can we talk about Maceo now? You know, I mean, the proof is this, right? Yeah. We're, we're here talking about Life on Planet Groove. You're not saying let's talk about Lena Horn. Then you're not having that, you know. And that's that's just, but that's the power of, you know, of of the blues. It's the power of soulfulness, soul, and telling your truth. And including the audience as a part of the experience. You know, the people that listen to the record are part of the recording. It's not a recording that you listen to passively. You become part of the, that magic when you listen. And it was that way when you were there in person. And the genius of it is, the power of it is, that it was bigger than a recording. You know, whatever was captured is alive. Because when you listen to it now, my true story, there, it, there could be you know, once or twice every month where I could be, you know, upstairs sleeping and I hear my wife downstairs playing Life on Planet Group. Uh, really? You know, true, yeah. And I'm like, wow, I really chose well. Like, how many people <laughs> have the wife that, like, goes downstairs to make breakfast and is playing Life on Planet Group? Like, that's pretty That's pretty cool. And I've also heard her play Coltrane. I come down, you know, I, I'm listening and she's, like, playing Coltrane impressions. I'm like, I did good. Yeah. You know? Is she a musician too? Or? No, she's a real estate agent. Right. But she saw Maceo, you know, she came to a bunch of those gigs and she loves loves Maceo and, and Fred and Pee Wee and, you know, it's all in with that, you know. Yeah, well, it's hard not to, isn't it? It's an incredible sound. And so what did you, I think you carried on and did some more recordings with them afterwards, didn't After Life on Planet Groove and those. Yeah, I did. I did Roots Revisited. I did Mo Roots, which was the next one. Then we did Life on Planet Groove. Then we did. Uh, some other like little niche singles recordings, which I don't know what happened. I even played bass on one of them, you know. Oh wow! Um, and th then we did. Uh, I played on some tracks on Southern Exposure, and then that Roots Revisited part. I mean, a uh, Life on Planet Group Part Two that that was released a couple years ago. The live yeah. thing, which is more like another night of that kind of thing, um, and with well, I think with Bill Stewart's in the band on that recording. And um, yeah, that was it. But there's this, I think there's a number of things that are still in the can and unreleased. And, you know, so we, you know, we recorded a lot. So yeah, live and otherwise. You know. Yeah. Stefan said every, you know, still got every six months, every six months, some video comes out of us playing somewhere that I didn't even know. Was video. <laughs> Stefan said what? He said, they still got some stuff. As you said, they've still got quite a bit of stuff that they could, they could choose to release or not, but you know, it's, um, yeah, it's you know well. He said, "You know what it's like. It's hard to get those things sorted, and there's a lot that goes into it, isn't there? When they when you you know actually put something out." So, are you still in touch with Maceo and Fred? Or I talk to Fred fairly regularly. You know, a couple times every couple months or so. I talked to Maceo maybe six months ago. He was still good. Yeah, I love those guys. And Pee Wee and I were good friends too. You know. Yeah, it was very sad to see Pee Wee go. Yeah, I mean, I saw Fred live in Manchester where I lived uh, a couple of months ago. So and he was doing good. Um, yeah, it was yeah. amazing to see him. You know, still, still going strong. Yeah, Fred. I mean, he's like he's, you know, he's legendary and he's an icon and he's a brilliant musician and a uh, he really just a good guy. I, he's one of the people I really love in this world. I just, I, I really, you know, I really consider him a true friend and idol and. Genius. I love him. I, I did several records with him too, and it was you know, amazing. Yeah. Was there anything in particular you think you learned from the three of them? 
as a musician? Um, well, I learned from Maceo. Um, I noticed that when Maceo would practice in the room during the day, his practice sessions were just like the gig. Like you never heard him like play scales or exercises. He's practicing as though he's performing. And I realized that like if you do that, you know, Michael Jordan, you know, would work out for like three or four hours before he went to the game. And so people say, Michael, you know, you got to play a whole game. Why do you work out? He says, because I work out so hard. When they get to the game, it's easy. I've already done all the hard work. Like the game is easy compared to the workout. The game is nothing. Yeah. And I think Maceo would practice so that when he got on the gig, he played the way he practiced. You know, I used to tell students, you know, if you want to play music, you have to practice music. You know, if you want to play exercises, then play practice exercising. Because what you do the most is what's going to come out. Yeah. And so I heard Maceo, his practice was always music and musical and always in time, always grooving. He never played like out of time rubato. It was always like, like grooving, like there's a drum killing it, you know. <laughs> And I learned a lot about that, like to practice, like you practice how you want to play. If you want to play that way, practice that way, you know. And uh, so, and from Fred, I learned just, you know, the genius of here's this funk icon, all that, who's a master of jazz. And I realized it's sort of the intersection, you know, Fred said jazz is the teacher and funk is the preacher, you know. And I think he really embodies that, you know, he, he moves seamlessly between the two. I think he identifies first as being a jazz musician who plays funk, not a funk musician who plays jazz. And I think Pee Wee, the same thing. They were both like jazz guys who could play funk and found a way. They used their skills to craft something beautiful in the funk world for James Brown. Um, so, but the, the records I did with Fred, by and large, were jazz records. You know, and Pee Wee, likewise, jazz recordings. You know, they weren't funky recordings. So, um, yeah, that was it. I learned a lot from those guys. Yeah. What are you up to now, mainly? Well, you know, I... I, well, you know, I taught for years at Juilliard and Manhattan School of Music, and when the pandemic hit, I decided I'd done enough of that, and I, I, I walked, you know, stepped aside from those things. I teach my own courses now uh, through a, 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 I have a course called Tune World and a company called Jazz Guitar Scholars, you know, that I, I teach online courses. I can, you know, if anyone can find me on Facebook or YouTube, and I, I, I do that. I work with Christian McBride's group, you know, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and do a lot, you know, stuff with him and did his recordings with him um and i i do a lot i i i'll be playing at smalls in new york on the 29th i just i'll be playing at a a, a, a club here in terrytown new york uh, called jazz forum with a quartet um i played two nights ago you know in in, uh, in connecticut um i work in new york all the time i may just you know i do all kind of different things and touring around not so much not a lot of traveling not a lot of road stuff but uh, you know, so high profile. I get I get some good calls from time to time from yeah, you know, because what happens? I have so much experience, you know, um, that you know, if you want it done right the first time, then you call me. If you don't want, you have you have more time than money. Call my student. If you have more money than time, call me. <laughs> That's you know, that, I mean, I'm not the cheapest guy, but it'll be done right the first time. If you have time to goof around and figure it out, then call my student. He'll do it for half the price. But just spend <laughs> twice the time. It's whatever you want to do. Got it. That's a good a good way of looking at it. A good a good yeah, good I mean, to be upfront. That's good to be upfront about these things. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I I have spent a lifetime being a professional, knowing what to do, what to play with, and what's the right thing, and and that has a value. Yeah, yeah. You know, likewise as a teacher, you know, I teach students who are beginner jazz guitar players, and at the end of my course, they can play. I give a money back guarantee. If you can't play jazz, I give you money back. And I know only one person ever asked for money back. And it wasn't because the course didn't work. He got busy. He couldn't do it. 
So there it is. I own funk.com too, you know. Um, I haven't used it yet, but I do own it. And, um, you know, I've taught, I have taught funk guitar and, and rhythm, you know, blues guitar and stuff like that. So, yeah, I spent a lot of time teaching, you know, writing and, you know, producing some sessions for people. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy with the life I have right now. You enjoy teaching. I love it. I consider myself a teacher who can play, not a player who teaches. I read that on your website, yeah. Yeah, I really believe that. So that's, yeah. uh, you know, because my father was a teacher and I've, I've always identified and aspired to be a teacher more than a player. So I learned to play and really love playing. But if I had to choose between doing the gig or doing a, teaching a workshop, I'd probably choose the workshop. Why is that, do you think? But, well, I love to see other people. I love to see the magic light up in someone else's face. It's very rewarding. You know, to see, I did a gig the other night on um, on Wednesday night with, uh, with two guitarists, bass, and drums. And the other guitarist was a guy named David Rosenthal, who was someone that was one of my students for a number of years. And, man, he played great. I mean, he played fantastic. Highest professional level. Like, he was clearly ready. And he played, like, you know, 90% of the stuff I showed him. And it worked. And so for me, like, the thrill was, like, hear me playing back at me and hearing like, yeah, that's, that's work. That's some badass stuff right there. You know, it was, but it was rewarding to know that like, you know, you, you gave someone a chance to have a life in music. He's now, you know, a popular, well, well respected working guitarist plays all the time, works more than me, you know? And, uh, cause you know, there's four stages in the career. I'm in the fourth stage, you know, the four stages, right? Do you know? No. The first stage is who's Rodney Jones. The second stage is get me Rodney Jones. The third stage is get me a young Rodney Jones. And the fourth stage is who's Rodney Jones. <laughs> so I'm in stage four now. Okay. Is that your own? Um, you come up with that yeah. yourself? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's very good. That's very good. You know the difference in a mutual fund and a jazz musician, right? Go on. A mutual a mutual fund matures and eventually earns money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like jazz it. musicians we don't really mature. We 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 like playing too much. It's playing. I like to play. Playing is work. Work is play. Come on. Yeah. Well, that feels like a good note to end on. So, Rodney, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you um, about life. Thank you, guys. About My you, pleasure. Your career has been great. All my love. Take care. guy i need to lie down rodney jones <laughs> yeah what a dude <laughs> just you know um listening back to the interview before getting ready today listening to it when you recorded it a couple of weeks ago and listening to it just now the biggest smile on my face what an interview yeah yeah as i say you know he was just he was genuinely warm and very funny to talk to and he was he was so generous you know as, as all our guests have been with his time and it, but it really came through you know how 
how much he loves that album and how much he enjoyed that time. And, you know, as I mentioned before the interview in, in the setup, you know, some of his little stories, obviously, about the joining Dizzy Gillespie's band <laughs> as an 18 year old, was it? I think. Yeah, 19, I, mean, what, I think. Oh, my God. 19, what an experience. Can you imagine that? Can you no. imagine? And I love the fact that both his. His music teacher, you know, and his dad were just like, "Whatever you do, do not go <laughs> with Dizzy Gillespie. Do not do that." But you know, he took he he had he made that choice, and I love what I loved as well is he basically in the interview said that he had the same pretty much experience as us. You know, like with Maceo, you know, he yeah. him and his friends would be listening as teenagers, and they'd be like waiting for Maceo. Um, you know, and, and that became a big thing for them, just like it was for us. And it's the same, you know, they had the same experience. And and we practically went on to have the same careers, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that whole idea that, you know, he got offered the Maceo gig and he said, oh, I'll have a think about it. And then he spoke to his friend who, yeah, you know, they I were friends. He was like, what are you doing? Take the gig. <laughs> Forget the money. This is the dream. So I loved that whole bit. Really loved it. And yeah, again, as I sort of mentioned in the preview at the start, you know, the whole um, who's Rodney Jones? Get me yeah. Rodney Jones. Get me a young, me Rodney, a young Jones. Rodney Jones. <laughs> who's Rodney Jones? <laughs> oh, it's God, absolute gold, that. That is gold. Yeah. I thought that was oh, one of the best things I've I've heard from anyone, um, you know, particularly on this, on this show. It was amazing. And as well as the amazing opportunities that he, he had, you know, you mentioned before we started about some of the people he turned down. And, you know, I want to just be able to speak to someone one day and say, you know, I turned down Whitney Houston. Why? I didn't want to wear the tux. Like, oh, my God. Sorry, Rodney. I'm just stealing that line. What a story. What a story. I love that. No, can't be bothered wearing a suit. No, no, no. thanks. Fair enough, not in this heat. <laughs> but, and you know, as well, just the... We talked a little bit about his playing uh, at the start of the episode. We, we played a little bit from um, from Past the Peas. But something mm-hmm. that I'd forgotten about till I re-listened to the interview recently as well is him talking about, although, you know, he, he can play anything, um, and having to kind of, you know, in one sense rein himself in, how difficult mm-hmm. it was playing Children's World, you know, at mm-hmm. that tempo. And just you've got one thing to do and you've got to nail it every time. And the concentration mm-hmm. that it takes, it's a very different skill set to, you know, what he does as a, as a jazz guitarist, but just, mm-hmm. you know, playing that one chord in the right spot every time and just finding that 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 pocket and nailing it each time is, you know, I thought that, um, that really uh, rung a, you know, struck a chord with me as well, if you'll mm-hmm. pardon the, the, it's not even a pun, <laughs> that's, just a, that's just what it was is doing. It, was it a D7 chord or was it a... Uh... Oh, I don't know. I'd have to go back and uh, listen to the tune. And you know, but you're know, talking about that level of concentration as well. And what do you say? You know, having to play the show, not watch the show. That was the challenge with Maceo. And just you know, yeah. the fact, that, like you said, he was such a fan. You know, and that he, you know, like us when we were fifteen. You know, just just freaking out listening to James Brown and you know, working out who all the musicians were and learning to play that kind of stuff. And way back, you know, uh, beginning of the series when you were interviewing Stefan and I had a moment, you know, thinking about the drummers and he just casually reeled off, you know, Melvin was the drummer and then we had James Gadson for a bit and Clyde Stubblefield might have played a few. Just like, yeah. just throw that what? in there, you know. <laughs> but again, just hearing him talk about Kenwood and obviously, you know, him having that relationship with Kenwood, but, you know, everything he said just reflects things that we don't need to repeat that we've already said about how much we mm. love about his contribution to the album. But but just, you know, that, that whole idea as well about, you know, Stefan had mentioned he wasn't sure if, you know, for some reason Maceo wasn't, quite happy with Kenwood and, and you know not being happy that's not 
that's not the right term for it, is it? You know, clearly, he, he loved Kenwood's playing, and and you know, mm. but uh, taking it from that perspective of not wanting to have someone kick your ass every night, you know, in the way that that Kenwood could, and the fact that, that both of them had these levels that they could go to and go to another level and go to another level, and that's what made you know some parts of the album just so extraordinary, and you know, yeah. Um, I agree. I mean, it's it's funny, isn't it? Because it, I think those were the only gigs that Kenwood did, weren't they? Um, yeah, just that short be- tour. Yeah, because and so 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 in a way, it's very lucky that this album they decided to record that. Because no disrespect, obviously, to the other drummers, but there's something mm. something unbelievable happened between almost not Maceo and Kenwood competing, but it all no. almost you know. Kenwood's aggression <laughs> and, and you know power obviously pushed Maceo to do something different than he might normally have done, um, yeah. and go you know even stronger than than maybe he would have done with other drummers. So yeah, <laughs> I love that 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 whole history or that story about the fact that yeah Maceo, as you say, obviously loved Kenwood's drumming and mm. loved his style, uh, but was a little <laughs> a little bit unsettled, I think, by just how you know, powerful he, he was. And so, yeah, yeah it's it really fascinating to hear that, uh, you know, both from Stefan and now from Rodney. And just one sort of final thought from me as well, plus, you know, anything else that you'd like to, to add about the interview, but talking about Maceo's authenticity. And again, that's something that mm. has been reflected in, you know, all the people that we've spoken to that, you know, we've talked about him, you know, playing the way he sings and singing the way he talks and just, you know, him just saying that, you know, the, the Maceo that you hear, that's just, that that just is Maceo. There's no, mm. you know, there's no artifice. He, he plays with, you know, absolute authenticity. You know, telling a story, preaching a sermon. You know, it's it's uh, yeah. Uh, um, uh, I'm I'm putting it less well than Rodney did, but just wanted to say how much <laughs> I enjoyed. You know, that um, expression of of what was special about Maceo as a musician as well, and that uh, you know, um, just telling his truth. That was I think how Rodney yeah. said it. And I just yeah, that yeah. just you know. Um, well, that says it all. Yeah, absolutely. He's a legend. He's you know the driving force behind this album, and he's almost like a sort of narrator. He's always holding your hand through the whole thing, isn't he? You know. Yeah. <laughs> but he's so yeah. In every respect, Maceo is absolutely fabulous on this album, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for listening to this latest episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with us, um, you can do a lifetime on planetgroove at gmail.com. You can also find us on uh, Twitter or X. And yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Please get in touch. If you've enjoyed the episode or you've got any suggestions about what we could do on future episodes or just anything, just let us know. We'd love to hear from you. So yeah, thanks for listening again. And uh, yeah, so Ed, anything you want to add before we go? Oh, you know, just uh, as soon as you finish listening to this, go and listen to Life on Planet Groove again. (laughs) If you've listened to it a hundred times before, treat yourself, you deserve it. If you've never heard it before, like I've said, you know, we're playing some excerpts here, but that can't replace the real thing. So, you know, do please go out, buy the record, buy the CD, stream it, download it. Um, You know, there's all sorts of ways to enjoy uh, the incredible music that we've been talking about. And if you want to, you know, learn to play guitar, um, you know, who better to learn from than Rodney Jones? He runs, you know, um, he's an incredible teacher, uh, you can find him online where he runs, you know, his own um, guitar lessons, you know, for, for every level. And, you know, uh, just thank you again to Rodney for, um, for you know, 
making my day and making this episode. It's just been an absolute pleasure <laughs> listening to him again. And, um, you know, speaking of Rodney's playing, I think in terms of playing out today, we've referred to um, Georgia on my mind uh, in other episodes. I talked, you know, I might have mentioned very briefly when I was talking to Natasha how much this tune means to me. And I still have, you know, recollections of it lying, listening to this in the dark. I don't know, just the... Um, how much this tune means to me and I love Rodney Jones's solo on this so please enjoy a little bit of Rodney uh, for the one moment on the album when he's not just laying in the cut <laughs> just you know telling a story serving the song oh I can't say it so let's let Rodney say it Smile. 